If you would, please remain standing for the reading of the word. If you have a little one, they are heading out to Children's Church. We have Children's Church all the way through to second grade, I believe it is. And so if you've got a little one, we would encourage them to head out, but they do not have to. Uh, I just, I saw something I'll just put as a side note. This is what I call a freebie, where someone posted a thing that, made a comment that said, if you're in church and you've got a little one that, that, that can't sit still and, and they're making noise in the church, that, that you're being selfish and you should feel bad about yourself. And I couldn't, have, I couldn't have disagreed with something more. When your children are here, there is no way, children, grandchildren, man, there's no way they're going to act worse than my kids. So you've got to pass. There's no way. And so I want to encourage you, when your kids are here, if they're being rambunctious, if they're not sitting still, that's fine. We want them here because they are as much a part of the kingdom of God as anyone else in this room. And we want them to be present for the worship of the Most High. Amen? Amen. So don't ever, don't ever apologize to me for your children's behavior because I reiterate, no one misbehaves more than my children. So don't even worry about it. With that in mind, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Just to give you a heads up of where we are going, we have finished the book of Ezekiel. That's, that's Ezekiel, not Ezekiel. I like to just make up names. Um, and starting next week, we are going to begin a series on a couple of uh, New Testament books. We are going to start next week in the book of Titus which is a, a powerful short book. And then after that, we're going to be getting into the book of James. Um, the book of James was transformational in my ministry journey, and I could not believe I'd never actually preached through James. And so we are going to get into that over this summer. So we're going to have a very, very good and challenging summer in the Word. But today, we're in Romans chapter 15, and we're going to be reading, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read into verse 9, but we're not going to go all the way through verse 9 today. So read along with me. The Word of God says this. It says, Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord, you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Please be seated. Now, this may come as a shock to you, and I know I have said this before from the pulpit, but nevertheless, I want to remind you of this fact that might still be shocking if you are new to this church, but sometimes the people within a church community do not agree with each other. 
I know, there was a big gasp. I could, you couldn't tell it on the video if you're watching online, but everybody is shocked that sometimes churches do not agree. In fact, one could make the argument that a healthy church actually should have disagreements coming up within itself from time to time. Now think about that for a second. We know, we all talk, we kind of joke, joke about it, we talk about it, that sometimes, you know, church people don't always agree on what we should be doing in the church and different aspects of the church. And have you ever thought for a moment that maybe, just maybe, it is good that churches on occasion have disagreements? Think about the, op- the opposite. If a church was never to have any disagreements of any kind over anything, something has to be wrong. For example, the church that doesn't do anything. And so there's nothing to disagree about. If you're a church and, and you are just going through the motion Sunday in and Sunday out and you're not trying, any, try, not trying anything new, not trying to do anything, but everybody has been lulled into such complacency that they just come mindlessly to church in order to check a box and to, to do their duty because they know that's what they are supposed to do and do nothing else about it, that's going to be a church that gets along with itself pretty well because they're not doing anything. They're just there, an entire building of bumps on a log, showing up at 11, leaving at noon, walking out the door the exact same way they came in. Another example is the church that is dominated by one voice so that there's no room nor opportunity for disagreement. That's not a healthy church. That is not a healthy church. If you have a church where, where, say, the pastor or some prominent figure in the church dominates every conversation, they run, they rule, and there's no disagreeing with that person, that's going to be a church that at least on the surface looks extremely unified, but in reality, they are squashing any other thought that might come to, to fruition. This is a church that is singularly minded by the gifts of one person. When we think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and and the fact that the body is many members but one body, this would be a church led by an ear demanding that everyone else be an ear. It might look unified, but it's not good for much. Yet another example is the church that expels or scares away anyone that does not always agree with them on all issues up front. They have a person, they have an ideal, they pursue that ideal, and if you do not fit that ideal, then they are going to run you off. This is a church, once again, that might look unified, but is most certainly not biblical. And people will walk into the church that may look different, dress different, come from a different background, or be a part of a different socioeconomic class. And from the moment they walk in the door, it is communicated communicated clearly to them that they do not belong. And therefore, they move on very quickly. Sure, the church might look unified. It might look like they don't have any disagreements. But the reality is, is they do not love. And they are not being obedient to the words of Scripture. And so disagreements within the church are not necessarily a bad thing. But it's how we handle disagreements that make the difference. 
One could say that disagreements ought to come up and they should come up in the church because that means we're doing stuff and we're trying stuff and we have all sorts of different people that look at the same thing in all sorts of different angles and lights and that's a good thing. But it is how we address disagreements that will really make a difference between a healthy church, a unified church, and an unhealthy church and a divided church. Our church, Tunnel Hill Baptist Church, has entered a season where God is really doing something in our midst. And I hope you can feel it. Many of us, as we've had discussions um, throughout the week and as we have private conversations and in Sunday school or wherever it might be, have brought up to me that they really feel like there is a revival happening within this church. And new things and new opportunities seem to continually come our way. But that means for us that we are bound to have disagreements on some of those things. What we do, how we do it, when we do it, how much money we put towards it are all going to be things that we have to discuss and we will have disagreements on. So how do we address the disagreements? I believe that Paul gives us tremendous insight in our passage today as he calls the Roman church into greater unity before his visit. So what happens when divisions and disagreements appear in the church? We see those divisions right off the bat in verse 1 of chapter 15. He says this, he says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. He kind of creates two groups right off the bat, and you may not necessarily catch it, but we're going to kind of help, help you understand what's happening here. He has this group, he says, the, the, those of us, he uses the first person here, who are strong versus those who are without strength, or one might say versus the weak. And he kind of shows that he says there's us who are strong and there are those who are weak. Now, thankfully, this has nothing to do with your bench press max or how fast you can run a 40 or how much weight you can deadlift, because that would really be a weird thing to have, you know, max out day here at church. In order to understand what these two groups are, we actually have to go back one chapter to kind of understand what is the context of this conversation about those who are strong versus those who are without strength. So turn back maybe a page or back a chapter to Romans chapter 14, and I'm just going to read for you the first two verses so we can start to get a feel for what Paul has been talking about. Romans 14.1 says this, it says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment in, on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Paul in chapter 14 is addressing a couple of disagreements that existed within the Roman church. These disagreements are what I like to call disagreements over diets and days. This is likely a reference to the difference between that existed in the early church between the Jewish Christians and the God-fearing Gentile Christians who had grown up keeping a, keeping a certain ta uh, table and dietary laws. They were, were Jewish people who were used to keeping the Jewish law on issues like what to eat as well as Sabbath laws and as well as, and this was by contrast to the Gentile believers that had never grown up with those things. 
and had no, no familiarity with them, did not know the laws concerning the Sabbath, did not know what it meant to only eat certain foods in light of, of your Jewish faith and all those things. When Paul refers to the people who eat vegetables only, when he talks about them being weak, it is not because of the lack of protein in their diet. Nor does this have anything to do with an admonishment against vegetarians or vegans. Now, I'm fully aware that if you go to this church, it is highly unlikely that you're a vegan. I've, I've seen the potlucks. Even our vegetable dishes have to have milk and cheese and bacon in them. Praise the Lord. But he's talking about those who had high concerns about keeping their diet kosher and therefore did not trust the meat that was sold at market to be properly prepared. What you had was, is you had Jewish Christians, Jewish people that were living in Rome. And because at the meat market, a lot of the meat was either not prepared appropriately or had been initially used as animal sacrifices to one of the Roman gods. They didn't eat it because they had no way to know which was which. And so they had kind of taken the same solution that we saw in Daniel chapter 1, where they said, in light of the fact that none of this meat is going to be prepared correctly, let's just stick with vegetables and things that we know are clean so that as to not defile themselves. I imagine it would have been a huge surprise to the audience when Paul sided with those who ate the meat. If we think about who Paul was in his own words to the church of Philippi, he said, I am circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. I halfway wonder, and even though Paul did not know this church per uh, personally, they probably knew his reputation and they probably would have assumed that he would have encouraged them to keep the same dietary laws that he had grown up doing. And yet in this passage, we see both in 14 and then moving on into 14 that he actually sides with those who eat the meat. And I'm sure they would have been like, I did not see that coming. I thought for sure he would have sided for us. I thought for sure he would have told these Gentile believers that they need to cut out the pork and, and cut out the shellfish and start eating things, just vegetables, or, or we need to open up a nice kosher uh, butcher here in town. We, like we can't, surely, surely, surely he's going to side with us. And yet he sides with the other group. In doing so, I think he turns their expectation upside down in hopes that they will actually listen to him. You know, sometimes we get so lulled into our own way that we stop hearing what the Bible is screaming at us. And we don't make changes in order to be more like Christ because we have gotten the idea in our head that we somehow have already arrived. This is what it means when he says to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves in verse one. This is actually something that he is, I truly believe he is addressing to both groups. Because the, the Jewish ones that are, are watching the Sabbath laws and watching the dietary food restrictions, they're the ones who think their faith is stronger. While the Gentiles, they may, because of the grace that they found in Christ and the fact that there's no condemnation in Christ, they think they're the ones that have more faith. And he says, listen, if you think you're strong, then bear the weaknesses of the other one. 
Don't think about yourself and your way and your priorities and your comfort levers, but put special effort into considering the other person. The emphasis is not on which is right, but rather to be patient and considerate of other people as they grow in Christ. Think about that for a moment. Your job in the church is not to be right all the time. I have to tell that to my children on occasion. Maybe what you said is right, but what you said was not considerate, was not gracious, and was not patient. We need to hear that in our lives today as well. Let's think about some issues that where it may be more important that you are considerate of other people as they grow, where that might be more important than being right. Issue number one, music. Music seems to forever be the dividing line in churches today. And to be quite honest with you, it's ridiculous. Have you ever heard the statement that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it? We were discussing this morning, and I thought this was so funny, as we were talking, as we were getting ready for the worship service, and I'm going to pick on it for a second. Lane said, I just think it's so cool that we can sing a song that was actually out of the book of Psalms. And I went and I said, you realize that used to be all the church did. That when you came to church, all you do was sing or recite or chant Psalms. And then these crazy people like Isaac Watts came in and said, you know, We could write some songs that are biblical that aren't just out of the book of Psalms and it would probably really speak to the people and he was almost kicked out of the church for it. And now people like Isaac Watts, we say those those are them good, those are the good old ones. And now as Joe would say, it's it's, it's not good because it's old, it's old because it's good, right? But at one point in time, that was forbidden in church. And now we've come all the way full circle and we're singing praise and worship songs that are the psalms from the book. And you may prefer hymns and, and the classic stuff. That's great. You may love the Gaithers. And that's wonderful. Someone else in here may really love it when we sing a newsboy song. Or a song from one of our other contemporary worship people. And let me ask you this. Are you more concerned about you getting your way? Or are you more concerned about making sure that everyone else in the church is able to worship with all that they are? What about tattoos? I don't have tattoos. I could find a lot of other things I would want to spend my money on than a tattoo. I don't trust anybody coming at me with a needle. Unless they are a licensed medical professional. And even then, I'm watching them closely. And I see people get tattoos on their neck. I don't trust anybody to put a needle on my throat. I'd rather spend that money on, well, let's be honest, food. You can tell that by looking at me. And some of us think that tattoos, we look at the scriptures and we see that stuff about tattoos and we think that the Christian, a follower of Jesus, shouldn't get tattoos. Other people will look at it and say that this is my body and if I can glorify my body, glorify God through my body with tattoos and that can create an opportunity for me to witness to people, whether that be a tattoo artist or the tattoos that I put on my arm, I'm glorifying God and that should be okay. Which are you more concerned about, being right 
or seeing your brother and sister grow in their relationship with Christ. So as that person with the tattoos comes in the door and they go all up their arm and all up the back of their neck, are you going to treat them differently because they look like that? Or are you going to be legitimately concerned about their well-being and their growth in Christ? What about Calvinism? We get into some of the doctrinal things and some people who, who would identify as Reformed or Calvinist, they're going to believe in this sovereign God who, who knows all and nothing happens according, uh, apart from His sovereign will going all the way to salvation. Others who are not Calvinists, maybe lead to a more provisionist role. They believe that God knows all things and, and all things are under his sovereign rule, but that he has given man freedom of choice and that he has given man his own responsibility and that he decides whether he is going to receive Christ or reject Christ. And my goodness has the church fought over that issue. An issue that we will never resolve this side of eternity. And personally, I think when we get to eternity, we won't care anymore. And yet we will make distinctions to the point that, that some churches will demand that you hold to a certain belief in order to be in fellowship with them and will blast and, 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 and ridicule the other belief from either the pulpit or from the Sunday school classroom. So are we more concerned about being right or are we more, more concerned about seeing these people grow in their relationship with Christ? The emphasis should not always be on which is right, but rather to be patient and considerate of other groups as they grow in Christ. There may be a right answer and there may be a wrong one. But if we shut down somebody and chase them off because they don't line up with us, then we've both lost an opportunity to grow. So then the question has to be, how do we do this? How do we focus more on growing and building up our brothers and sisters in Christ and less on just winning the argument? And I believe that the answer is we look to who we follow. Not the, not the tenants, not what makes you a Southern Baptist or what makes you a tunnel, tunnel hill topper. I don't know what I'm working on it. What's our, I don't know what our mascot should be. The WKU people in the room are like, yeah. Um, but to focus on who we follow. Notice in our passage today what Paul does. He gets done with this instruction and with this command in verses 1 and 2, and then he says this in verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. He makes literally this beeline to the example of Christ and who he was and the example that the Roman church had in Jesus. And he, he said, listen, we need to be focused on seeing people come into a relationship with Christ and grow in their relationship with Christ. Look at what Jesus did. He was more hard on the people that were trying to be right all the time than he was on the people that were way off base and struggling and needing somebody to care about them. Now, what's interesting about the passage is that he uses the Old Testament to do it. Look again at the passage, verse 3, he says, but, every, but even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. This is Psalm 69.9 and one of the most quoted 
Old Testament passages that we find in the New Testament. This may be interesting for us today because we have to remember that Paul didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament was still being written, still being understood, still being um, uh, put together and canonized. And so when he was looking at the Roman church, he had to appeal to Scripture. And so he appealed to the Old Testament to show this is who Christ was. If we were to put this into the proper context, it is likely that the Roman church had little to no access of any type of gospel, let alone any writings of Paul beyond the one that they currently have in their hands. And yet Paul could use the Old Testament to still point them to Jesus and the example that he set. For us today, we need to use the whole Bible, both Old and New Testament, to know Christ and to do his will. And what example does Christ give us from our, in this passage today? It is that he gladly bore the weight of our sin so that we might have a relationship with God through him. In the same way, we are to follow Christ's example by bearing with one another, serving one another, so that we might bring them closer to God. You may notice in the passage there's this term. It says that those without strength ought to, ought to not just please ourselves, but each of us is to please his neighbor. That is a, a word that means to please means to, to serve. We could kind of unpack that a little bit and it means to serve each other, to take care of each other, to build up or to edify each other. Really, it doesn't mean to just make them happy or to just do whatever they want, but rather to serve them in such a way that they grow in their relationship with Christ. Paul said this to the church in Colossae, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. This is the mindset that he's trying to communicate to the church in Rome. He says, listen, in light of the fact that you have been forgiven in light of the fact that Christ died for your sins, in light of the fact that you are now of the people of God, chosen by God to inherit a new heaven and a new earth because we are the church, in light of all of those things, please be gracious and forgiving and loving and compassionate and understanding and humble and gentle to everyone else. And I believe that means first and foremost within the church, but I think that needs to extend beyond the church. That we should be humble and loving and gracious and gentle with each other when we have disagreements, when we say things we don't necessarily like to each other, when we mess up and sin against each other. We should be humble and gracious, but then we should take that same attitude out to a lost world that has got to be by now sick and tired of the way we're behaving. Is anybody else sick and tired of the cancel culture and the cut people out of my life? And if you're not making me better, then you don't get to be a part of my life attitude. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the narcissism. I'm tired of the, if you don't do what I want and you don't say what I want, and you don't read my mind, then I'm going to cut you out of my life because you don't have a place in my life. That's not Christ. That's the world. To exemplify Christ is to be patient gracious, compassionate. This is what we are called to be. And this is how we should be towards each other. And this is how we should be towards those who don't know Christ. 
So not only do we do this through keeping a special focus on who we follow, on the examples of Christ, but also because of the purpose that we share. See, if we look back at the passage, it's not just about, he says, you know, look at Christ, look at the example of Christ, but then he goes on to talk about what we exist to do. As we go on, he says this, I want to pick up in verse 5. He says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul points them back to their mission. The very reason why the church exists, the very reason why Christ came to begin with. Please understand this. We exist to glorify God. And all that we do is for the purpose of glorifying God. When we share our faith, we glorify God. When we are obedient to Christ, we glorify God. When we disciple other believers and mentor them and even sometimes correct and reprove them, we glorify God. When we encourage others as they are suffering or mourning or struggling in their sin, when we strengthen others, when we show loving patience towards others, we glorify God. We exist to glorify God. That is the whole point of this message. You don't exist to get your way. I don't exist to get my way. We don't exist to be comfort, we, to, to be comfortable all the time. We don't exist to, to make a lot of money and to retire. We don't exist to make sure that our grandkids have a lot of money and can live in, in, in comfort and, and, and be able to, to, to just enjoy life. We exist to glorify God. Tunnel Hill Baptist Church exists to glorify God. We don't exist to entertain you. We don't exist to provide a nice club for you to be associated it with. We don't exist for something to be a resume, something you can put on your resume when you run for office or when you're applying for a job. That's not why we exist. We exist to glorify God. And I might sound crazy, but you have to understand that or you are missing the point. Now, we here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church, we believe that we glorify God by, by diligently doing two things. Technically, three. First and foremost, we glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission says, Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So first and foremost, we glorify God by making disciples of all the nations. And that means starting with evangelism and sharing the truth about Jesus Christ so that people might become disciples of Jesus all the way to the point where a disciple of Jesus is evangelizing and discipling other people to follow Jesus. All of that is part of making disciples. We believe we exist to do that and we glorify God when we do that. The second thing is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. So the first is the Great Commission and the second two are the greatest commandments. When we love the Lord 
with every fiber of our being, we glorify God. And I'm going to give you a little clue, a little Old Testament trick for you. If you go to, say, the book of Deuteronomy, every time God calls the nation of Israel to love him, he says, love me by keeping my commandments. Did you know that? Did you know that you love God when you are obedient to what God's told you to do? If you didn't know that, let me give you a little example. Let's say you are a parent. Most of the people in the room are either a parent or know a parent because they had one at some point. And you, and that, let's say your kid, you're a parent and your kid says, I love you. But then the moment they walk out of that room, they go and do all the things that you hate. Do they love you? If I have, I've got kids. You figure that out by now. They're all sitting in the back, rolling their eyes. You get used to it. And I say, don't fight with your sibling. And they say, if you love, you know, don't, you love me? Yes, I love you. Don't fight with your sibling. Got it. And then they walk out of the room and they look at their sibling and their sibling has something written across their forehead. Now you guys can't see it, but that sibling can see it. And then what's written across that other sibling's forehead is slap me. And I can't see it and you can't see it, but my, my kids can see it. And so, I mean, what are you going to do? And then it just, and, and then it just erupts. They're not loving me when they actively pursue the things that I don't want them to pursue and really even the very things that I hate. It's the truth. And you can twist it any way you want to, but that's the truth. And the Bible's very clear. If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus himself said that. So we can't come into church on a Sunday morning and tell God, I love you. I magnify your name. And then walk out the door and do the very things that you know he hates. Can't do it. Someone's lying. And it isn't God. Not only this, but he says to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the, the second of the two greatest commandments. Notice the standard that we find here. Love your neighbor as yourself. This doesn't mean martyrdom. Where you just slip off into depression and woe is me because you're so busy loving other people. But it also doesn't mean that narcissism that we talked about first and foremost. Where we say, I'm going to make sure that I'm taken care of first and then I'll worry about other people. God says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Put them on the same standard. Make sure that when you think about what's best for you and when you're thinking about what you want, that you, can, that you take the time to consider them other people whether that be your children or your spouse or your coworker or the person that you've never met, don't make sure that you are always taken care of first, but love your neighbor as yourself. This means that, to, that wrapped up in the call to glorify God is a call to love each other and to teach and disciple one another. We simply cannot do that if we are so wrapped up in our differences and in ourselves that we can't even see what it is. Jesus had this to say in the Gospel of John. He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, 
but also on those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as I, or even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, when, when we have disagreements, remember, that's where this all started. When we have disagreements, and when we come together with disagreements and we seek to first and foremost follow the example of Christ and glorify God in whatever we ultimately decide, that reality echoes. And when people outside of the church and churches outside of this church see a church that has differences and resolves those differences in a biblical, loving, selfless manner that has a huge impact. And that people will begin to look into that church and say, wait a minute, something's different. Something about them is different. Something is is not what I have always seen my entire life. And I want to know what that is. And it says here in the Gospel of John that they will see the unity, that they will see the love that we have for another, that the world may believe that Jesus is of God. See, it's all tied together. And make no mistake, Tunnel Hill has a reputation. And every church in this community has a reputation. If you don't believe me, go ask a funeral director. They know. And there are churches that have reputations of being divided and selfish and mean. And there are churches that have reputations for being loving and caring and putting other people first. Which one would you want to go to? Which one do you want to be associated with? Well, you're part of that. And we have to choose every day to pursue Christ, to glorify Him, and to be obedient to the great commission and the greatest commandments. For this very reason, that, this is the very reason that Paul ends this passage today with this command. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. We are going to have differences and disagreements in this church, and that's okay. But will we love each other? Will we accept one another just as Christ accepted us, warts and all? And will we come alongside each other so that we may grow and our faith, and our obedience towards Christ. That's my question for you today. For some of you, that means taking a step of obedience for the very first time. For some of us today, that means actually, really, truly surrendering ourselves to Christ. See, the good news of the gospel is that Christ accepts you, warts and all that he has died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the grave three days later so that you might have a relationship with God through him. It's not about get your life right, then you can come to God. It is about God has done the thing so that you can come to him and then he will begin the process of getting your life right. And if you are with us today, regardless of where you are in that spectrum, he is calling you to himself through a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we want to talk to you about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are looking for a place where you can be loved, where you will be accepted, 
but accepted with the idea that you will grow to be more like Jesus, then we invite you to come to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and to join in fellowship with this church. For the rest of us, we are not done. We are not done growing. We are not done serving. We are not done glorifying God. So let us continue. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. God, we stand in all of your goodness, Lord, and we praise you for that. Lord, as we are reminded about what the gospel says, God, we are reminded that you have have done all the work for us, that you sent your only son, that that even while we were yet sinners and hostile towards God, that, that you came, that Jesus came, and that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the grave three days later and ascended to seat at your right hand. And God, that if we would just put our hope and trust in him, Lord, that you will wash us clean, that you will make us right with you. And God, that you will begin the process of making us more like you. Father God, help us to see that as a church. Help us to see that in everyone's life, that all of those that are in you, maybe at different places in their growth and different places in their, their, their walk with you, God. But I pray that we will be a church that loves one another, accepts one another, encourages one another, builds up each other so that all of us will continue to grow and to be more like you. God, we live in a world that is so selfish and so self-centered and so wrapped up in in ourselves above everyone else that, Lord, to be like this is so countercultural that the world doesn't even understand it. God, we pray that you would help us to understand it so that we might live in light of you, bring glory to your name, and draw people to you. God, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.